This episode of AVXL is recorded on January 29th, 2021. We're going to talk about free video calibration, keeping an eye on your video subscriptions, and a whole bunch of viewer questions, and some sweet prices on LG OLEDs. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us, and thank you to every person that supports us on patreon.com slash avxl. You make the show possible. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I have a bad case of radio voice. Yay. <laughs> I love headphones. Personal <laughs> audio. I digress. It's all good. We should talk immediately uh, about the sale through February 7th on LG OLEDs, because it's a good sale. They are clearing out the 2020 models, <laughs> as quick as they can anyway, to make room for the 2021 models that will be popping up here in the next month or so. I was going to say, apparently faster than we expected, the 2021 models. Exactly. Eh, it's usually around April, May, they start trickling out. But before then, and until the 7th of February, you can literally get Black Friday style pricing on the popular B series and the C series and the gallery series, the G series. Let's start with the two most unhinged prices here because if you bought a 77 inch oled from lg you're going to be pissed at least if you bought it in the last week or two if you paid full price oled 77 cx and the oled 77 gx gallery tv man the gx the gallery tv the 77 inch went from 59.99 to 39.99 that's uh that's huge. That's a good sale. And the 77-inch CX went from $49.99 to $32.99, which is not as huge a drop, but is still a hefty, hefty, hefty drop in price. I think it's just good to see those prices to know what it is at a good value for those particular panels. Right. Relatively, how cheap do they get before they disappear? A lot of times, as stuff starts to trail off, we see the prices go up. I was looking at Amazon and they have an extra 50 bucks off right now for the 65 CX. At least they did yesterday. That would get it down to 1950 delivered to your door. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's tempting. That's only a couple hundred bucks more than I paid for the 55 inch version of the C9 that I picked up over about right. a year ago now. Guess I've had my TV for a full year. <laughs> I, in a sense, I was in a similar position where I was looking at right. these models at about this same time frame and seeing what the best deals were and considering the sporting events and other things coming up shortly. It's a good time for a sale. <laughs> Keep in mind, though, for that gallery TV, that's really, a, yeah. I think, a very specific use case that is made right. to be mounted flat to a wall, really. Uh, it's not right. made to be pulled out and angled, generally speaking. It's really there for that gallery style, which it's frankly beautiful, but it may not be the most practical for your particular setup. Right. And that's where you want to be looking at something like the C-Series in particular, which gives you the best in class video processing, yet a more traditional design that can easily sit on a table or on the wall or however you want to do it. It's way more flexible in terms of where you're going to actually place it. I'm pretty sure the gallery TV doesn't even come with a stand for, <laughs> right. for no. sitting on a table you can always mount it on a sheet of plywood um <laughs> don't don't yeah. tell anybody lgi said that they that would upset them and for good reasons 
let's talk about the pricing on especially that gallery. It's been down around $4,300, except it bumped up at the beginning of October, tail end of October, beginning of November. But it's basically been under $4,500 since September, right? It's sold at full price May, June, July, dropped towards the about three quarters of the way through July. I'm looking at camelcamelcamel.com. It eventually dropped in September down to 4,500, then 4,300 in October, late October, early November. And it's basically been between 4,300 and, and 4,153. So that's a good thing to point out. The original list yeah. price lasted for about 90 days. Yeah. So when you see a new TV come out, or if you're expecting the, the G1 or the C1 or the B1 or the A1, actually, I don't think there is a B1. <laughs> there right. is an A1, though. Anyway, if you're expecting those new 2020 models to come out at certain pricing, be aware that usually for that first 90 days or so, it's going to be at right. full list retail for that until until things settle down. And then the deals start yeah. happening. I'm never in a hurry to buy a TV. It's a pretty big drop. The CX-77, um, the 77 CX, I should say, went from, you know, again... In this case, two and a half, just under three months at full price. Then it dropped five hundred dollars. It dropped from forty five hundred to four thousand, and then it dropped to thirty seven fifty, and then it dropped. Then they keep going down. They may be sold out of the. Oh no, nope, nope, nope. Seventy seven is still in stock. Sixty five is still in stock. It's funny. Camel, camel, camel was saying they were out of stock, but it looks like they have all of these in stock. It's a good time to buy a TV, friends. <laughs> totally. If you have some of the 2020 models in mind for LG's OLED technology, yeah, uh, the prices have never been better. You haven't missed out on anything yet, unless you're uh, <laughs> anxious for the 2021 models, which, you know, yeah. consider this time next year for the same prices on those upcoming TVs. <laughs> Something worth mentioning, too, is is looking at the 65-inch, which is probably the most popular television they make. That was one, two, three, four months at full price. Then they dropped $175 off a $2,500 TV. Then the price dropped to under $2,000 for Black Friday and then climbed back up for you know for the christmas shopping scene climbed back up to $2300 and is now down to 1996.99 the more popular tv the longer it's going to looks like the longer it's going to sit at that price something we're thinking about and also once again camel 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 to the rescue with incredibly useful information about pricing on products totally um, and i understand too that oleds generally are more expensive than an equivalently sized lcd television if you have the budget for an OLED, now is a great time. Mm -hmm. The prices are ideal for you getting a terrific bang for the buck, especially on that larger panel. Uh, a 65CX, mm, that looks good in just about any room, except very large rooms where you really want a 77 <laughs> or, good Lord, maybe one of those new 83-inch panels that are coming up for 2021. But, but, but don't try to buy them in the first three months. <laughs> seriously. I'm so curious to see what that price will be. Both uh, Robert and I have been on Daily Tech News Show in the recent past, Tom Merritt and company, that they talk about tech news every day. And I bring that up because uh, Tom does an amazing show called Cord Cutters and talks a lot about cutting the cable cord. And he and I got into a conversation because uh, usually he's asking me a tech question and I'm geeking out on some aspect of hardware. And I was just like, you know, but, but, 
there's too many video services. And, and Tom calmly said, because as, as, Tom is always calm. Uh, when Tom's not calm, it's kind of amazing and terrifying. But, uh, you know, Tom likes to say, don't be completist. And I was thinking about that because Wonder Woman 1984 has left the building if the building is HBO Max. And uh, the next Warner Brother theatrical slash HBO Max co-release, or I guess they call them same day premieres, is going to be Denzel Washington's The Little Things. Two cops track down a serial killer. That uh, I'm looking forward to because, uh, you know, Denzel and, and Raimi should be amazing. And the person playing the villain is also uh, capable of chewing scenery in a positive way. That should be live by the time you hear this. And we've talked about titles being available for a short period. Uh, Max, uh, HBO Max is definitely driven by this. Harry Potter movies, they were there for like 30 days or something when HBO Max launched. Uh, Matrix 4 and Dune are also going to be on the list for uh, theatrical Max co-releases this year. Uh, Judah and the Black Messiah is going to hit February 12th. They're definitely, looking at HBO Max, they're definitely trying to drive subs. They're trying to grow it as fast as they can, I think, because they're so far behind Netflix and Disney Plus, and they need revenue to be able to, to you know, make all this function. No more free subs are available, right? Because they don't want anybody signing up for a week and watching the movie for free and then canceling. Uh, but they're doing this weird prepay offer. So you can get six months for 20% off the stock $15 a month fee, like basically 20 bucks off for six months. It's been interesting watching HBO Max because it's such a peculiar mix. Friends, South Park, West Wing, Fresh Prince, the Studio Ghibli movies, Rick and Morty, uh, which is unbelievably funny. Uh, and I'm still not ready to, for my children's to see it. Uh, they have a ton of beautifully restored classic Warner Brothers cartoons. They have a ton of movies on there. The quality of the encoding is kind of all over the map, in my experience. Although I will say, uh, I'll say it again, there's Warner Brother cartoons here I haven't seen in 30 years. And my children have been howling. And they look beautiful. You know, they're four by three, they're letterboxed, and they look fantastic. But I've been thinking about this a lot. There's going to be cases like... I'm finishing up watching uh, American Gods, which is one of my favorite Neil Gaiman books, and I've been following the series, and the series is kind of a hot mess. I'm realizing that I'm going to probably stop the Cinemax subscription when that's done because there's just not that. I never, I watch this show and then I'm done. <laughs> right. <laughs> I find it very difficult to add other services, especially considering I'm really not taking full advantage of the services I currently have. Mm hmm. It's a time thing. It's like, sure, I can have more sources, but I am just one person. <laughs> yeah. And there's only 24 hours in a day, and a third of them should be sleep if you're going to survive. <laughs> and I have a good assortment of sources as it is, including my beloved disc player. So, Just something to think about. It's also, yeah. as I think as we get less so with Netflix, uh, more so with a lot of the smaller channels, I think there's going to be a lot of cases where things come and go or shift around. Netflix spent a staggering amount of money keeping friends on Netflix for an extra year because it's such a, it's comfort food for a lot of people. Right. What's the cost on a box set of friends and is it too big of a pain in the ass for you to get up uh, to insert another disc? I don't know, but it's, it's going to be something I think we're going to see more challenges in terms of content subscriptions as we move forward. Just something I was thinking about. Speaking of old content, my beloved Babylon 5 is now available on, oh, the fully remastered series Ooh. is available now on Amazon Prime Video. <laughs> I was nice. looking at that. I have the disc box set and I'm like, look and buy season one in HD for $29.99. And I'm like, ah, time for me to go dig up that box set. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but uh, if you never watched Babylon 5, that's uh, mid-90s sci-fi. It was excellent overall. It had some of the coolest storytelling and arc of a story in general. It's really fun stuff. A lot of good stuff going on there. Some wonderful actors. Some who have oh, since passed, but it's still good stuff. Oh, my goodness. Let's let's not get into actors that have passed. It's too mm. early in the day for me to cry. True. You want to do uh, kind of follow up from last week talking about noise reduction settings with noisy content yes on video you brought up a great point last week about how certain movies can feature when you watch them on either especially on the bigger screens like a projection system mm-hmm. you really notice details that you may not see so much on smaller size screens one of them being noise and that can be something like film grain or compression artifacts every tv i look at has some type of noise reduction setting most projectors actually incorporate that as well. There are a couple different types of noise reduction. My TV, an LG OLED, happens to feature two specific types. One that deals with what they call temporal noise artifacts. Those are the repetitive style noise, like film grain or something that's sure. shimmering in a sense. There are also spatial artifacts as well, which are more along the lines of things like compression artifacts, like mosquito noise and other things that are within the frame itself. Temporal noise reduction actually compares successive frames or nearby frames to each other, sees where things have changed, and tries to make its best guess at identifying and eliminating those types of artifacts. When should you use or not use noise reduction? Generally, I will tell everyone to always turn it off because there is a chance, no matter how good an algorithm is, it will slightly soften the picture in its attempt at removing some of this noise. However, if you find that the content you're looking at is noisy to the point it's distracting, That's where I say, definitely go ahead and experiment with the noise reduction settings on your TV. Try one or both. Try them at different levels. A lot of TVs Mm -hmm. now feature an auto mode that does a pretty good job of staying out of the way when not needed and not overly softening. However, with any good content and specifically with video games or disc based content that is relatively clean to begin with, leave noise reduction turned off for the absolute best detail you can get on the screen. But otherwise, yeah. With a little bit of film grain or something, and if you're finding it's just taking you out of the moment, that's where you want to look at something like a, a temporal noise filter. Generally, TVs will have that just simply labeled as noise reduction. And then if they actually incorporate separately something for spatial artifacts like your compression type artifacts, could be blockiness, could be mosquito noise, like I was saying. It's nice to have separate controls for those, but often I'll see it just kind of all rolled into one. Generally, less is better if you do have to enable noise reduction. Turning it all the way up can make content look a little weird, to be honest with you. It almost looks too odd or cleanish. So for your old content that could have some of those type of artifacts in it, or even newer releases that are just of old content, keep in mind that those noise reduction settings are there and they can be used to help make that a more enjoyable viewing experience. For what it's worth, I will say that uh, it didn't really bother me. It was just fascinating for me to see because it's Criterion Restoration of His Girl Friday. It's a magnificent restoration because that's what Criterion does. But it was fascinating to see all of this content just looking. It's just something you don't see on modern films. You know, there was just a lot of grain in this in this uh, in this film. I don't know. I enjoyed it. I also use noise reduction occasionally for broadcast content. 
uh, there are still stations out there broadcasting in 720p, and when that gets scaled up to a 4K screen, it can look a little funky, especially I see specifically the spatial type artifacts where you're looking at compression around text on the screen or something like that, or sometimes some blockiness to it. And a little noise reduction can help clean that up as well, especially when you're dealing with large screens where you can really soak in that detail, be it the the detail you're looking for or <laughs> a particular type of noise artifact. Hmm. Uh, noise artifacts. Yeah. We could spend the whole episode talking about noise and video. Uh, we probably also spend an entire episode uh, talking about uh, calibrating televisions, but you had some good stuff on, uh, on Roku TCL TVs and the calibration kind of tool or app that's built into that. Yeah, it's something I forgot to mention last week as well when we were talking about the latest values that you can get from TCL in their Roku TV lineup. One of the cool things is that while it can be a terrific value, especially we love that six series they put out, sometimes right out of the box, it isn't calibrated as good as it should be per se. It could use a little help. And one thing I always forget to mention is that TCL has its own IPQ engine calibration app that you can actually check out and download. There are iOS and Android versions of this. The key is that you need a compatible phone and it has to be on the same local network as the television itself. So if you do want to check this out and use your cell phone to actually dial in the white balance of the TV, which will affect not only your color accuracy, but also hopefully detail as well detail is important yeah <laughs> and if i can throw down one tip real quick is if you do try to run this app try it a few times uh get used to it run this when the room is as dark as possible so that the light coming off the tv is not being tainted by potentially other sources of light within the room itself oh man if in the end the results aren't to your liking there is a simple reset function too that will take it right back to the defaults so you're not stuck with an odd calibration or maybe maybe somebody you have a saved life as it were yes exactly yeah other manufacturers are starting to explore calibration apps like these samsung has a new app that's out right now that i've yet to test out actually and i'll be really curious to see if it works on anything besides a samsung phone but <laughs> that's Part of the problem is that when you're using the camera on a mobile device, it's hard to know the standard that camera was built to and how accurate that camera might be. When you're looking for what devices are compatible with this, it's going to be specific really to a few different phones that have been sure. tested and known to produce uh, an acceptable result with this technology. Well, it has to be. I mean, that that's one of the reasons why so many, for example, Sonos, if you want to tune your room with Sonos, you have to use an iPhone. They chose that because the mics are consistent and that allowed them sort of a baseline to do the calibration for the room. Exactly. Um, and with cameras, it's an even bigger nightmare. True. And this is something I think anyone could do. Mm -hmm. If you do have one of the compatible phones, give it a shot especially if you own one of those uh, wonderful TCL TVs that is compatible with this free calibration app. And it's the free calibration IPQ engine calibration app. Now I'll definitely throw a link to that in the show notes. I got a question for the older game console enthusiasts out there. I should say the enthusiasts of older game consoles would be more accurate. Uh, our patron advent is looking for a new AVR short list for him. Denon's 3700 H, which is what I bought so I could get four channels of Atmos overhead or DTSX overhead. Uh, he's bummed, though, that it doesn't have a component video input because he's got some older game consoles he wants to run. 
through his big screen. Now, I know some purists are all about keeping the old school CRT for classic games and console machines, but I'm thinking external analog video to HDMI boxes. I mean, it would be fun to find one of those massive old Sony televisions, you know, the 37-inch television that weighed 94 pounds. I guess technically it only weighed like 54 pounds. The Trinitron, baby. Oh, my goodness. They made some beautiful televisions, and it's so funny to think of how terrible they look compared to today. But I'm curious if anybody's running an old Nintendo or Atari 2600 into their 4K AVR. How are you doing it? What are you using? And uh, do me a favor and email ask at avxl.com. I used to use a DVDO video processor external box that featured every analog input you could ask for, and it converted everything with a seriously nice video processor to HDMI output, and that was super convenient. But nowadays, yeah, if oh, I have a what is it? I have a Panasonic 3DO game console, old school, mm-hmm. uh, still in mint condition, and it still runs. Yet it has, I want to say, I have an S video output for it. And when's the last time I saw an S video port on anything? At least with S video, I was able to uh, get a little bit better chroma (laughs) in the signal, a little bit better clarity, even if I couldn't run it. All uh, the RGB, but I'm curious too, because I've been experimenting with the RetroPie setup and it's interesting how you can configure the scaling and other settings within that for dealing with scaling this relatively low resolution content up to something like a 4k panel (laughs) lots of tricks and tips but yeah if somebody's got a good option for a standalone something like a an hdmi switch that provides analog inputs for conversion at a good price and they're happy with it yeah email ask at avxl.com something to think about yeah i think we all do and if not well there's other things to talk about like tom from fremont emailed askavxl.com Robert and Patrick, glad you're back to putting out regular episodes of AVXL again. I have a question regarding image retention, or in my case, image burn-in. I have a four-year-old LG B6 65-inch OLED calibrated by Robert back in 2016. Whoa. I've recently noticed permanent burn-in in the lower left part of the screen caused by watching episodes on YouTube. I've attached a screenshot of my TV. In my case, the burn-in is caused by watching This Week in Google. I thought it was interesting that only certain colors, orange and red, cause the burn-in. Numerous LG screen cleaning cycles has not helped. This looks like it's permanent. So, two questions. Are current OLED TVs any better at resisting this type of burn-in? And if I were to purchase a top-of-the-line LCD TV this year, would the picture quality approach that of an OLED? If not, what would I be giving up? Thanks, Tom in Fremont, CA. Oh, yeah. Well, the 2021 OLEDs, according to all the data I'm looking at, they do feature a reformulated OLED material, in particular for the 2021 LG G1 OLED. It should resist burn-in better than previous models, and also likely some of the advanced cooling techniques, like those used in the Panasonic Pro OLEDs, I'm assuming that's coming over to the G1 as well. A Sony has announced a cooling solution for their premium OLED. That will also likely help. However, this is just a bunch of weasel words at this point. We really need to get some of these in for some in-house <laughs> long-term testing before you can really say if this new material is actually better at reducing or eliminating potential burn-in than previous models. Yeah. On my 2019 OLED, I've yet to see any sign of burn-in whatsoever, but I am extremely careful about the content I'm leaving on there. If anything, I feel the pain of static logos 
and very bright objects that seem not to move, like either a score ticker or a stock ticker or things like that. I would have thought after the, all the problems we had with plasma televisions and the related burn-in issues with those and even broadcast TV content being displayed on them, that there would be a general trend within the broadcast industry to get away from things like that. But there are still plenty of potential items out there. Static logos, bright white objects on relatively dark backgrounds. Those are the high contrast situations where if things don't move around enough, there is a potential to cause some uneven pixel wear and it's not good. That's something you will not have a problem with with an LCD. Now, the second part of that question is, are you gonna see an LCD this year that can match the picture quality of an OLED? I would say yes. I'm not sure what the price point's gonna be on that. However, that is gonna be when you look at it straight on uh, with the ideal viewing position, the sweet spot. As soon as you get off axis, it's really hard for LCDs to compete with OLED in terms of providing that excellent picture contrast or any degradation in color performance or things like that when you start getting off axis. Uh, that's one thing OLEDs do exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. I am very excited though to see this latest mini LED backlight technology from TCL and Samsung. I have high hopes that they have got a handle on things like image artifacts related to blooming or hotspotting or things like that. An LCD is going to look fantastic when viewed straight on and somewhat comparable to the image quality of an OLED screen. As soon as you get off axis, though, that's where the differences do creep in. In a big way. True. <laughs> Hey, one more thing before we go. Let's talk about uh, surveillance cameras just for fun and also because we're kind of curious. Uh, I don't think that we're ever going to do a lot of home automation, but we occasionally dabble in it. But you helped me out. You've spent an insane amount of time. You are part of a service organization. They have a facility. The facility has a camera surveillance system. And when I was dealing with somebody sneaking into our backyard to look at our quail, you were like, oh, just go buy an Arlo, which has been amazing. And the resolution on the cameras, they're wireless, they're simple, they're rechargeable, is great. Uh, the fee's annoying, but you also were able to walk me through some pretty detailed analysis of your system from the NAS box that records all of the video to some really amazing cameras you have to monitor what's going on at the facility. What are like three hard rules at this point for anybody dealing with, with setting up a, a video or a surveillance system? I mean, what, what are the big takeaways? Because you've dealt with what, 35, 40 cameras in this system? Yes, our current system supports up to 40 cameras. I'm currently running about 35 simultaneously right now. What you mm -hmm. mentioned, that something like an Arlo is gonna be the easiest solution for most people, especially if you only need one or two, and you don't mind paying a fee every month to make that work for right. you. However, there are open standards, one in particular called ONVIF, O-N-V-I-F. That is the standard that just about every digital surveillance camera in the world follows. You're then offered some compatibility between even different manufacturers. And especially if you're going to be dumping all this content to a particular device, uh, some type of storage, be it an SD card, a dedicated NAS box, or some sort of DVR, it's just nice when all the cameras can actually play together and offer some base compatibility. And that's something that that OnVIS standard does. Nowadays, I wouldn't even look at anything that is using analog technology, especially if you're going to do this DIY. The power over Ethernet standard is so well entrenched within home surveillance now, it's easy to simply have that one single cable providing both data and power to cameras up to a few hundred feet away in ideal conditions. 
one thing to keep in mind is that there are various flavors of power over Ethernet, and it's good to make sure that you pair your switches or whatever the power source is going to be to the camera and the distances you're dealing with. You want to make sure those things are all matched up. And that's just simply looking through the specs on a particular camera that you're looking for. There are also tons of lens options, and that really depends on your application of what you plan to record or what you want to record for these particular cameras. One interesting thing I found in terms of designs of cameras, especially in outdoor environments, are spiders. Spiders tend to be attracted to not only warm things, but also if your camera is equipped with something like infrared lights, it will also attract insects out the wazoo. So while having <laughs> a camera with built-in infrared is a nice feature, it simply doesn't work for us because of the amount of insects and spiders that are attracted and spiders basically putting a web right in front of your lens, which isn't the greatest thing in the world. So do keep that in mind. I also find that dome style cameras with that curved surface are far less ideal for spiders to build their webs in compared to something like a flat turret style camera. <laughs> There's also a variety of video compression styles, uh, the big ones being H.264 and 5. H.265 is going to give you smaller file sizes for your given recording. Even if your camera is equipped with H.264, though, you want to dive into that web interface and make sure you're selecting the high profile to give it the best compression quality possible. That kind of dives right into these digital cameras is the fact that they're all mini computers in effect. And within that camera, there's a nice web interface that you can go in and set features like what recording resolution? Do you want to set a trigger or an alarm if something walks into the scene? Motion detection for cameras that are like pan tilt zoom quality. Some even offer advanced features like AI detection in terms of object identification to actual tracking of an object through a scene. When it comes to your storage side, yeah, NAS box is great, especially if you're going to be recording lots of video. But another beauty of every digital surveillance camera I've looked at in the last few years, they all feature SD card slots as well. So you can put a, a mini SD card in there, have it actually record locally to that camera, and then you can simply go right to the web interface of that camera and retrieve the video manually that way. It's not super convenient, but that would also eliminate the need for a separate storage device if that's something you either don't have or don't don't want. When it comes down to simply plotting out where you're going to put these cameras and how they're going to work, I have some good resources for that in terms of just figuring out for a particular lens set up at a particular distance, what are the expectations in terms of actual detail you're trying to record. A lot of people would love to record license plates at 100 feet or something like that. <laughs> that takes a specific lens setup to get that right. And it's kind of creepy. And to be consistent. <laughs> I just want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're coming on my property, I'm going to take a picture of you. I understand that. The other beauty of having this web interface on these cameras, literally little the little mini computers that they are, is the fact that it makes it very easy to then go in and do firmware updates or software updates. Or you can then select maybe a NAS box instead of a built-in SD card or have both for the storage capture. And it's just a very, very flexible way to have the best of all worlds and to be able to set this up with a system that doesn't require a monthly fee if that's not something you want to deal with. I think for a lot of people, something like an Arlo is probably the best way to go in terms of simplicity. But if you have no problem terminating an Ethernet cable, I think you would enjoy how capable the modern surveillance cameras are today on the digital side of things in terms of just being able to easily connect it to your local network, choose the storage option you would like. And then it really does come down to the software. The built-in web and app interfaces vary quite a bit from manufacturer to manufacturer. 
It also varies on how premium that camera is. I find the more expensive cameras generally have stronger CPUs in them that make that web interface a hell of a lot more usable than it is on the least expensive cameras. Starting for less than $100, you can easily find 1080p cameras with built-in infrared that can be set up and configured however you like to whatever storage setup you want. And then it comes down to how you access and manage that recorded content. And that's really where then something like a dedicated box is kind of convenient. In my case, I'm using Synology boxes. Their NAS products feature a built-in surveillance system that can operate with two cameras, I think, for free right out of the box. And then you can add additional cameras for a, a reasonable fee, but no monthly charge beyond that. That's what I'm currently using. However, if I wanted to just eliminate even that, I could just roll my own literally with a standalone, either SD cards in each camera or simply having any standard NAS box be the endpoint for all the recorded video. So there's like tons of options. Robert has a pretty spectacular amount of data he can access. Uh, from personal experience, uh, which is he's turned his data into knowledge and wisdom. And uh, if you're curious about it, do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com because we're here for you. Seriously, email us, ask at avxl.com. You got a, a home theater question, an audio question, a camera question. We're, uh, we're always kind of curious to hear what y'all are interested in because we do this for you. We also want to thank, as always, our patrons because you make it possible for us to do this. You cover the bills. You help us make a little bit on the side. That's uh, patreon.com slash avxl. And keep an eye on the, uh, on the postings there if you are a patron. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we got to wrap this thing up before the mayhem starts. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.